Hey, how would you answer this question? How would you fill in this blank? To me, family is blank. How would you answer that? To me, family is... Now, some of you would say, to me, family is everything. It, it, it's my life. It's, it is the center, the heartbeat of who I am as a person. To me, family is everything. Others of you would say, well, to me, family is my safe place. It's where I know that I'm loved, that I'm always accepted. Uh, family is where I am secure. Now, by the way, if you can say family is everything and family is safe and family is secure and family is love, then, boy, you're blessed. Amen? And you ought to be grateful to God that you can say that. Because some of you would say, to me, family is pain. Family is disappointment. Um, you might even say, to me, family is nothing. It, it doesn't exist. It's non-existent. I don't really have very much in the way of family relationships. You know, it's a fact of life that... The highest highs that we will ever experience in this life will be experienced in the context of family. And as equally as that is true, this is true as well, that the lowest lows that we will ever endure in life, we will endure in the context of family. It is at home that we are going to always discover our deepest loves, where we're always going to find our greatest joys. But it's also true that it's in the context of family that we are going to encounter our most severe disappointments. And we're going to experience life's deepest losses and devastations. Now, this is true for all of us. Every person in the room knows exactly what I'm talking about because we've all experienced those things and we've all endured those things. But Joseph, as well in our text, Joseph knew what it was to experience these highs and lows just like us. Joseph knew what it was to be loved and to be taken care of. He knew what it was to experience the warm, almost the security blanket of, of a loving family relationship, the love of his mother, Rachel, and, and, the, and the love of his father, Jacob. He knew what it was to be cared about and provided for. He knew what it was to have great affection for others in his family. But Jacob also knew what it was to experience hostility in family, to suffer rejection at the hands of family members, even to be betrayed by the people in your life who ought to love you the most and where you should be the most secure, to be betrayed by those people. He knew all of those experiences, and in time, he would ultimately learn the joy of forgiveness and of reconciliation as well. Now, all of us have had to walk through these kinds of situations like Joseph walked through to varying degrees. And like Joseph, we need to learn to trust God 
with our families. You know, it's been said, you all know this is true, we can choose our friends, you don't choose your family, right? I mean, we're, we're born into a family and some would say, well, it was the luck of the draw or it's just kind of the, 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 uh, the, the, the hand that I was dealt. Well, the truth is God is sovereign over all of life and so he's sovereign over our family selection as well. We don't choose our families, uh, the family at least that we're born into, but we know that we can trust God with his choice. Today we're going to talk about Joseph's experience and we're going to learn how to trust God with our families by watching Joseph as he learns. Now, let me give you a little bit of background just before we read Genesis chapter number 37. You'll remember uh, from the last couple of weeks that we have been introduced to the family of Jacob, his 12 sons, and his second to the youngest son, whose name was Joseph. Joseph, we learned last week, was a dreamer. And by that, I don't mean to say that he was, would daydream or had these, these great ambitions or life dreams. I mean to say that God gave him dreams. And you'll remember from Genesis 37 last week, the two dreams that he had, which uh, gave insight into the, uh, into the place that God would raise him to in life, where he was going to be this uh, great uh, man of power, the vice regent over all of Egypt. He was hated because of his brother or by his brothers because of that, as you'll remember. And uh, I think where we ended our text in Genesis 37 last week, uh, Joseph's brothers had taken the sheep to pasture them in a distant land, and Joseph uh, was going to check on them. His father Jacob had sent him to check on his brothers and to check on the sheep. That's where we're going to pick up the text today, beginning in verse number 18. And uh, you're going to watch as Joseph comes walking up to his brothers out in the field. They see him coming from the distance. They know it's him when he's far enough away, so far away that they still can't recognize his face. They know it's him because of what he's wearing. And you know what he's wearing, right? He's wearing that bright, colorful, multicolored tunic that the King James calls that coat of many colors. So let's read it. Genesis chapter 37, uh, beginning in verse number 18. Genesis 37, 18 says, And when they, the brothers, when the brothers saw him afar off, even before he came near unto them, they knew who he was, and they conspired against him to slay him. And they said one to another, Behold, this dreamer is coming. Come now, therefore, let us slay him, And cast him into some pit, and we will say some evil beast has devoured him. And then we shall see what shall become of his dreams. You remember his dreams were that he would rise to power and they would all have to bow down to him. And they're like, we're not going to bow down to you. We'll we'll, uh, be done with you. We'll kill you and throw you in a pit, and then we'll see what comes of your dreams. Well, verse 21 says that Reuben, his oldest brother, heard it. And he delivered him out of their hands and said to them, Let us not kill him. Reuben said to them, Do not shed his blood, but rather cast him into this pit that is here in the wilderness and lay no hand upon him. And he said this so that he might rid, them out of, rid him out of their hands and deliver him safely to his father again. And it came to pass when Joseph was come unto his brothers that they stripped Joseph out of his coat, his coat of many colors that was on him, And they took him and they cast him into a pit 
and the pit was empty, for there was no water in it. Now, we can know that this is not just any old pit out in the, in the wilderness. This is a, a water cistern. It's an ancient water cistern. And all over the Holy Land, these water cisterns are there because it's so vital in that land where there is so little rain and so few months of the year that when the rains do come, you must collect the rain and store the rain. And so all over the land, these water cisterns are dug out and then uh, covered with, uh, with uh, clay and tiles and and water is collected there. Well, here's a, here's a water cistern that has no water in it. And so they throw him down in that pit. Verse number 25 says, And they then sat down to eat bread. While he's in the pit crying out, Hey guys, let me out! They sit down to have lunch. We might all agree with family like that. Who needs enemies, right? With family like that, who needs enemies? I want us to talk today about family and about trusting God. How do we learn to trust God with our family? We've got a pretty good picture just from the verses that we read about what life was like for Joseph in Jacob's family with all of his 11 brothers. Um, but let's talk for a minute, not about Joseph's family so much, but let's talk about God's perspective of family. Why don't you write this down? We're going to answer the question today, what does God say about family? What does God say about family? Now, uh, while you're writing that down, let me uh, direct your attention to chapter 37 and verse number 2, which we didn't read today. We read it last week. In verse number 2 of chapter 37, uh, this statement is made, these are the generations of Jacob. It goes on to say, Joseph, being 17 years of age, or 17 years old, was feeding the flock with his brothers. Now, when I read that last week, you may have thought, now that's strange because the statement says, here are the generations of Jacob, and then it just talks about Joseph. It goes directly to talking about Joseph and none of his other brothers. This is an interesting uh, part of the Old Testament, an interesting tool, a structural tool that's used in the Old Testament to identify seasons and breaks in what God is doing. And you can use this literary tool or this structural tool to follow what God is doing in the Old Testament to raise up the nation of Israel and ultimately to bring redemption to the world. Let me tell you the tool I'm talking about. In the Hebrew, it is a word called toledoth or toledot, toledot. And it's, it's translated in English in verse number two, the word generations. These are the generations of Jacob, or this is the toledot of Jacob. And the word toledot means an accounting of a man and his family, or a man and his descendants. This is the accounting, verse two says, of Jacob and his family. Now, as I mentioned, this toledot is used throughout the Old Testament, with that Genesis particularly, to show us how God is raising up families and separating them to ultimately accomplish his plan. In fact, hold your finger in Genesis. I think this will be helpful to you. Go all the way back to uh, Genesis chapter number 2. Hold your finger in Genesis 37. Go to Genesis 2, and you'll see this word in verse number 4. The Toledot, or the generations. 
Uh, Genesis 2 and verse number 4 says, These are the generations, or this is the toledot, of the heavens and the earth. Now, obviously, in this case, it's not referring to a man and his family, but it's an accounting of the creation of the heavens and the earth. So after the creation account in Genesis 1, first day God created, second day God created, third day, these six days of creation, and then the seventh day of rest, all of that in chapter 1, then you come to chapter 2, and, and it concludes by saying, this is the Toledot, or this is God's creation of the earth. Well, then in chapter 5 in verse 1, you have these are the generations of Adam, the Toledot of Adam and his descendants. You begin to get a picture of how that God created the human family. Well, we know that the human family originally in their rebellion against God, they were then judged by the flood, Genesis chapter number 6. So in Genesis chapter number 6, the Bible says, these are the generations of Noah, chapter 6 and verse number 9. This is the Toledot of Noah. So watch what happens. God's using these, these moments where he says, here's the creation of the heavens and the earth. Here's the accounting of it, or the Toledot. And then he says, now here's the creation of Adam and his descendants. Let me tell you about those. They all lived up until the flood... And they now are all going to be judged in the flood. So God says, now let me tell you about the generations of Noah. Noah and his sons will come through the flood. They will live after the flood and replenish the earth. I've got the accounting of the creation. I've got the accounting of the antediluvian or the pre-flood world, Adam and his sons. Now I've got the accounting of Noah and his sons, which take us beyond the flood. If y'all are with me, would you shout Amen. If you care about this, would you say amen at least, right? So you've got the accounting of creation, the accounting of Adam and his sons. Now you've got the accounting of Noah and his sons. Well, if you know the book of Genesis, you know that God said to Noah and his sons, multiply and cover the earth, replenish the earth. But they didn't do that. They all dwelt together, made one city, built a tower to reach the heavens called the Tower of Babel, Genesis chapter 11. And so God had to scatter them by, by um, uh, confusing their languages at the Tower of Babel so they would spread and populate over the face of the earth. And out of Genesis 11 into Genesis 12, you have the Abrahamic covenant where God's going to take these post-flood people now spread out over the earth, and he's going to call out one family where the nation of Israel will come from. So in Genesis chapter number 11, verse 27, you have the Toledot, or the generations of Terah. And Terah had a son whose name was Abram, and he became Abraham. And so God said, let me tell you about the creation of the heavens and the earth. Let me tell you about the creation of Adam and his sons. Oh, there's the flood. Let me tell you about Noah and his sons. Oh, they didn't do what they should. Let me tell you about Terah because now I'm going to call Abraham out. And then Abraham's going to have two sons, Isaac, or I'm sorry, one son, Isaac. And then you'll find the Toledot of Isaac or the generations of Isaac in Genesis 25 and verse 19. And then Isaac is going to have two sons, Jacob and Esau. And do you know that Jacob's 
generations or the listing of Jacob's sons are not found in Genesis 37. It's found in Genesis 35. Go there. Let me show it to you. At the end or near the end of Genesis 35, you'll see it beginning in verse number 22. Genesis 35, 22 tells us about his 12 sons. Let me get there. At the end of verse number 22, Genesis 35, now the sons of Jacob were 12 Sons of Leah were Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, and Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. Then the sons of Rachel, those were Joseph and Benjamin. And then there were the sons of Bilhah, Rachel's handmaid, Dan and Naphtali. And then there were the sons of Zilpah, Leah's handmaid, those were Gad and Asher. These are the sons of Jacob, which were born to him in Padan Aram. All right, so there you have the generations of Jacob. Now, Genesis 36 gives us the Toledot or the generations of Esau, the brother of Jacob through whom Israel would not come. They're set aside. And then you arrive in Genesis 37, verses 1 and 2, where he says, now here's the Toledot of Jacob. Now, I, I go through all of that to simply say to you that God uses this Toledot, these generations in the book of Genesis to show us how interested he is and how intentional he was in showing us the progression of his redemptive plan. I have created the heavens and the earth. I have made man. Man sinned and I have judged man. I have saved a man named Noah and his sons. I have called a man named Abraham. I have sent that promise through his son Isaac. He had two sons. I'm going to set Esau aside. Here's his generations, and here's Jacob and his generations, and he will be the one through whom Israel will come. If y'all are with me, say amen. Now, I have to tell you, I love that because it reminds me of the fact that God is not playing around with his plan. He's not just rolling the dice on how things are going to go in his world. He is always orchestrating and moving things about according to his exact plan. It's the Toledot or the generations, the accounting. So when you come to Genesis 37 and verse number two, and it says, these are the generations of Jacob and immediately goes into talking about Joseph. It's because we've already learned the names of all of his sons in Genesis 35. And now he launches into telling us the story of the family as it relates to Joseph. And that family story is all wrapped up in Joseph's rise to power in Egypt. What Genesis 37 actually could say is, in verse number two, this is the story of Jacob's descendants, or this is the account of Jacob and his family. Or it could say, this is the, or these are the family records of Jacob. Now, we're going to talk about Joseph's family, and, and, uh, and we're going to deal very specifically with some of the issues in Joseph's family. But I want to talk really generally about family for a minute. When the Bible uses the word family, and and by the way, it does, as you would imagine, hundreds and hundreds of times. When it talks about family, the word family in the Bible literally means a circle uh, of descendants. It's a clan or a tribe. Um, It is a, a circle of relatives who descend from the same 
uh, forebear, the same parentage. So the Bible talks a lot about the fact that the, that the human family exists in families. But what about Christian families? Because there are families all over the world, right? And there are families in every culture. And, and not every family is a Christian family. So how do you know if you're building a Christian family? Let's talk about it for just a minute. Will you hold your finger in Genesis and go all the way to the New Testament with me to Ephesians chapter number 5? Would you meet me there, please? Ephesians chapter 5, where Paul talks to us about God's structure, God's plan for a Christian family. Now, by the way, when we talk about a Christian family, we are presuming, this is, this is assuming the union of Christian people. So Christian family has at its head, in the, in the parents, Christians, and ultimately the children uh, becoming Christians we would trust. But a Christian family involves Christian people. Non, if y'all listen, say amen. <laughs> this is obvious. Non-Christian people cannot build a Christian family. It's not possible. Now, they can build a family that shares some values that Christian families might share, but it is impossible for Christian, non-Christian people to build a Christian family. So what is a Christian family? Write these things down. Number one, a Christian family is one in which there is the union of one man with one woman. This is a Christian family where there is the union of one man with one woman. And I want to read to you from Ephesians chapter 5 and verse number 31, where Paul quotes from Genesis 2 and verse 24, and he says this, For this cause shall a man leave his father and his mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, circle the word joined, please, shall be joined unto his wife, and those two are no longer two, but they become one flesh. A man shall leave his father and his mother and shall be joined unto his wife and they shall be one flesh. The word joined is this idea of cleaving together. Leaving and cleaving. It is the idea of a covenant, of joining together in a covenant. Now the reason I emphasize this so much today is because in this culture, fewer people are marrying in this generation, fewer people are marrying and more and more people are choosing cohabitation. They're choosing to live together without being married. And this has even become, it has become an issue even for Christian people. Christian people who simply say that to live together is enough, we don't need to actually be married. I want you to hear me this morning very clearly. I'm giving you exactly what the Bible says. You must understand that cohabitation outside of the bonds of marriage is not a Christian family. Now, you might even have a, a couple of Christians who have decided they're going to live together as husband and wife, but they have not been married. You may have two Christians living together, but they are not building a Christian family. A Christian family is one in which there is a union of one man and one woman. Which means that I also need to talk very honestly about homosexual marriage, which I completely understand is legal in our land. And legally and culturally, 
the union of two men or two women in marriage constitutes a family in the culture. I get that, but it is not a Christian family. Can I be as clear as day on this? When two, when a homosexual couple is married, even if they claim to be Christians, the union of a homosexual couple is not the building of a Christian family. A Christian family happens when Christian man marries Christian woman and they are united in marriage and that is the beginning of a Christian home. Or at least one of those people becomes a Christian and are hopefully leading that other spouse to become a follower of Jesus Christ. All right. So a Christian family is one that is built when there is the union of one man and one woman. Number two. The second thing you need to know from Ephesians chapter 5 is a Christian family is one where the husband lovingly leads his wife. It's where the husband lovingly leads his wife. Ephesians 5 and verse 25. Husbands, love your wives even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word and that he might present it to himself a glorious church not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing but that it would be holy and without blemish so ought men also to love their wives. Now, ladies and gentlemen, a Christian home is one that is being built where there is a Christian husband who has chosen by the grace of God to follow the example of his Lord and that he is lovingly giving leadership to his bride, leading her to holiness, to walking with Jesus, and that she is more holy for having married that Christian man. That is a Christian family that is being built. It is where a man understands that the measure of love is the measure of Jesus Christ. And that Jesus has loved us sacrificially and that Jesus loves us redemptively and that Jesus loves us with restorative passion and that Jesus is always about picking up and healing and he's always about walking in holiness. And when a husband understands that and he leads his wife in that way, then he is building a Christian family. Now, gentlemen, hear me. Leading means, means going first. It doesn't mean you're always the most spiritual. It doesn't mean that you're always uh, you know, the, the, uh, the smartest. It doesn't mean that you're always any of those things. Listen, in my marriage, I'm rarely any of those things, okay? But it means that the husband understands his responsibility to go first. First in devotion. First in surrender. First in commitment. That The husband models for the wife what it looks like. That he sets the temperature for how we're going to serve the Lord. And that the wife is not the one leading the way and the husband's just sort of slouching his way toward heaven. No, I want to build a Christian home where the husband is lovingly leading his wife. That's number two. Here's number three. A Christian family, according to Ephesians 5, is one in which the wife willingly submits to her husband's leadership. The husband lovingly leading and the wife then humbly uh, willingly submitting to her husband's leadership. Ephesians 5 and verse number 22. Wives, submit yourselves unto your uh, own husbands in the fear of the Lord, I mean, as unto the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Now, again, this is a, the structure 
of a Christian home. It is where the wife recognizes not the superiority of the husband, because there's nowhere in the Bible that the Bible teaches the superiority of the husband. There is equality of the sexes. There is an absolute equality before Christ. In Jesus, there is no male nor female, nor bond nor free, nor Greek, nor nor Jew. We are equal before Christ. The wife is never asked to acknowledge the superiority of her husband, but she is called to acknowledge the role of her husband. That God has ordered the Christian family where the husband is the leader. And when the Bible says in Ephesians 5 and verse number 22 that the wife is to submit to that leadership. I've told you before, the Greek word is hupotasso. It means to willingly underrank. To simply say, I will choose to, to rank myself beneath your leadership and I will follow you as you lead. Now, here's what I've discovered in, in my own marriage with Tracy and in, in uh, three decades, three and a half decades of ministry. That where there is a husband who desires to honor Jesus and who loves his wife and lovingly leads his wife with humility and servant leadership to greater holiness, rarely will you ever find a wife that will resist submitting to that leadership. Now, if he's a jerk, forget it. Seriously. If he's overbearing, if he's, if he's self-centered, if he believes somehow that he is superior, then yeah, you better believe submission is going to be an issue. But you find a man who will love his wife and humbly, lovingly lead her with a servant's heart, then I want to tell you that this Christian family is the easiest thing in the world because the Spirit of God empowers us to do it. There's a fourth thing you need to know about building a Christian family. Not every, not every couple has children, but where there are children in a Christian family, uh, those parents then train those children in the Lord. You'll see this in chapter 6, Ephesians chapter number 6, beginning in verse number 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Now, by the way, if you're raising little ones, uh, you should understand that there is a biblical value to training your children to be obedient when they're small. Shepherding their heart to be responsive to your parenting to, to uh, building a home where your children know that mom and dad are the parents, kids are not the parents, because in a Christian family, children should obey their parents. We sort of live in an upside-down world where children rule the roost. If y'all are listening, say amen. In the Christian family, children don't rule the roost. In a Christian family, we teach our children. doesn't mean it's easy. doesn't mean they always do it. Mine certainly never did, or did sometimes. I don't mean to say never did. They didn't always. But the point is we train them to obey their parents. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and your mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with thee, that you may live long upon the earth. Uh, and you fathers, you parents, provoke not your children to wrath, but rather bring them up in the nurture and in the admonition of the Lord. The word nurture means the modeling of it. Bring them up modeling, directing, cultivating for them a heart for the Lord. And then teaching them, admonition is to instruct or to teach. We, at, we uh, instruct them in the ways of the Lord and we teach them. So what is a Christian family? How does God uh, define a Christian family? 
It is a family where uh, ideally both of the parents, hopefully both of the parents are Christians, but certainly at least one, leading the way uh, to uh, uh, giving spiritual life to that family, where the husband is lovingly leading his wife, where the uh, wife is willingly following her husband, where the children are being brought up in the knowledge of the Lord, being taught to follow their parents' lead. It's being cultivated, it's being taught, and it's being uh, uh, passed on to the next generation. Now, why does all this matter? It matters because every Christian family has as their purpose, I'll say it again, every Christian family has as their purpose the glory of Jesus Christ. That's why your family exists. It's why God let you marry that gal. It's why God gave you Mr. Perfect, if you think you have him. It's why you have those children, if God's given you children, that you, this family exists for one purpose and one purpose only. It is the glory of Jesus Christ. And a home built in this fashion brings glory to Jesus. Okay? This is what a Christian family is. And if I am trusting God with my family, then I will trust him to build my family by his grace upon this biblical model. And I won't build it on the model of the world. I won't build it on the model of common uh, cultural psychology. I won't build it the way my neighbors are building it. I will say, my family's different. My family has the goal of the glory of Jesus. We're going to be a Christian family, and we're going to order our family in this regard. I trust God in his word, and this is the way I'm going to do it. Okay? This is a Christian family. And so may the Lord give us grace to be able to do it. Now, none of us do it perfectly. Why? Because we have a problem. Can I ask you this question? What is wrong with our families? Would you write that down? It's a good question. What's wrong with our families? I didn't say what's wrong with your family. <laughs> I said what's wrong with our families. You may be offended. You may say, what's nothing wrong with my family? Really? No, there's something wrong with your family. And there's something wrong with my family. All of us know, if we're honest, that in our families there is brokenness. Because every family struggles. Every Christian family struggles. And the reason we struggle is because like Jacob and his 12 boys, we're all sinners. And because we're sinners, we're going to live imperfectly we're, we're going to make mistakes. We're going to choose poorly. We're going to make sinful decisions. And those decisions are going to have repercussions and fallout and consequences. We're going to need forgiveness and restoration and reconciliation. And then because we're still not going to be perfect, we're going to make mistakes again throughout the course of our lives. Hopefully fewer, but we're going to make mistakes until we finally make it to heaven. This is what's wrong with our families. We're sinners. And the truth is, Jacob and his family knew something about this as well. Go back to Genesis, if you will, chapter number 35 this time. We'll end in 37. But Genesis chapter number 35, I, I read to you earlier, beginning in verse 22, the list of Jacob's 12 sons. What you may have noticed, and I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, is that these 12 sons did not come from one wife. They came from two wives and two other women. I want you to know, in fact, you should write this down, Jacob was guilty of immorality. He was. He was guilty of immorality. 
Now, you may say, well, Pastor, I mean, it was the culture, right? In that day, polygamy was a thing, and it wasn't unusual for men to have multiple wives and multiple sexual partners just to build larger families. And, and it was the, let me tell you, polygamy was never the will of God. He did not create men and women for multiple sexual partners. He didn't. He created man and woman to be in a monogamous relationship. And it is not that we would be, it is not right that we would uh, have multiple sexual partners. And it is, in fact, immoral when we do. And in fact, if you look at verse number 22, I only read the last part of the verse a moment ago, but look at the beginning of verse number 22, chapter 35. Verse 22, it says, It came to pass when Israel, or Jacob, dwelt in that land that Reuben, his firstborn, went in and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Jacob, or Israel, heard of it. Reuben went in and slept with Bilhah, who was the mother of two of Reuben's half-brothers. So the immorality or the immoral actions or choices of Jacob passed down to his son, Reuben, and to his other sons. We read in chapter 38 of uh, Judah and his sins. Now all that to say that if we recognize that God wants us to trust him with how we build our families and we want to have a Christian family, then we need to learn the lesson from Jacob's life and guard Everybody say this word with me, guard. Say it out loud. We need to guard. Say it again, guard. And you know what a guard is. I mean, a guard is someone who, who's protecting. A guard is usually armed. A, a guard is on post. A guard is alert. We need to guard against immorality in our homes, in our families. Immorality is sweeping our land. Immorality is available at the click of a button. Immorality is available in every imaginable form. And loved ones, if you want to trust God with your family, if you want to build a secure Christian family, then you must take steps to guard against immorality. Dad, that begins in your heart. It begins in your, with your eyes. And it begins in your home. We must guard against Immorality. Secondly, Jacob was not only guilty of immorality, he was guilty of preferential love. We know this from Genesis 37, verses 3 and 4, where it tells us plainly that he loved Joseph more than all of his other sons. He was the son of his old age. He was a special boy. He loved him more than, uh, than any of the others. And it wasn't just an affection in his heart that he never spoke with his lips or showed with his actions. No, he made him, chapter 37, verse 4 says, a coat of multicolors, which, by the way, was not anything that any common person wore in that day. The tunic of a shepherd in that day was a sleeveless, thigh-length, drab-colored, yellow, tan, brown tunic. It would be sleeveless and thigh length only because that allowed the, the man to work and move about. And you could make them very cheaply. You made the wool, you, or you uh, uh, gathered in the wool and you would dye the wool and common things like you'd boil, them, uh, boil the wool with onion peels or with nut shells, things that were common and cheap. And that's what everybody wore, the common people. 
that only the wealthy people, only the royalty, only the special people wore multicolored things. And the coat that he made him was not sleeveless and to the thigh. The word that's used means it came to the wrist and down to the ankles. It was a robe, and you don't work hard in a robe. And he would wear that long, multicolored robe, and it said to all of his brothers every time he put it on, I am daddy's favorite. How do you think if you had 12 sons and basketball season was coming and they had all been passing down the same pair of canvas Converse tennis shoes since the 1960s and your youngest or second youngest son came along and wanted to play basketball and you went and bought him the Air Jordan's $150 shoes and he came out sporting those kicks. You think his brothers are going to be, well, that's wonderful. No, every parent knows this is great sin in a family. And it brings tension and disappointment and, and resentment in a family. Jacob was guilty of preferential love. Thirdly, Jacob's brothers were guilty of hatred, of lying, and of betrayal. In our text in verse number 18, they conspired against him. They decided to murder him in verse 20. Verse 23, they stripped him off that beautiful coat. They jerked it off of him. They threw him into this abandoned water cistern. And in verse number 25, they callously sit down while he's crying out to have their lunch. They could care less. And while he cries out from the pit, they eat their lunch and get their story straight and decide what they're going to do to convince their father, Jacob, that Joseph is in fact dead. Here's the truth. God calls us to trust him in the way that we build our families and he gives us a model of how to do it. But the problem is, is that we're sinners and sometimes we're guilty of things like immorality and lying and deceit and bitterness and preferential love and anger and, and even such conspiracies and hateful things and maybe even some things that would even reach to the level that Jacob's brothers or Joseph's brothers sinned against him. And because God gives us this model of how to build a family, and yet we're imperfect in the ways that we do it, we need some hope. Don't you agree? So let's close by talking about what is the hope for our families. Now, we've read the text down through verse number 25 where Joseph is crying out and his brothers are, are, um, are having their lunch. And I mean, it's a hopeless scene, right? I mean, this is a, this is a mess, this is a broken family. You got a worried father back home. Only Benjamin is back home. All, all 12 brothers, 11 of the 12 have gone out now. Benjamin is at home with Jacob. Jacob's worried about how Joseph and his brothers are doing. You got, in this text, you got Joseph down in an old abandoned water cistern crying out and scared. And in a few hours, he'll be a slave in Egypt. You've got his brothers sitting around outside thinking about how much money they're going to get for him and how they're going to spend their newfound windfall. And it's a mess. They're getting their story straight of how they're going to, going to take his, his multicolored tunic and rip it and dip it in goat blood and create this, this story, fabricate this story that he's been killed by some wild beast. This is a family without hope. There's no coming back from this, it doesn't appear. And yet, they do have hope. 
And while we're going to talk about the hope that they found in weeks to come, let me tell you that there was a hint of the hope that this family would have. When you consider Jacob's family, not his sons, but his mother and his father and his brother. He didn't have 11 brothers, he had one brother, his brother named Esau. And if you were to go back, and we won't take the time to turn and read it, but if you were to go back to Genesis 27, years before what we're reading in Genesis 37, you would have Jacob and his mother Rebecca conniving and deceiving Isaac, Jacob's father, and cheating Esau, his brother, out of the inheritance, the family inheritance. And when Jacob cheated Esau out of the inheritance, Genesis chapter 27, I think it's in verse 30, 31, says that Esau says, I will kill you. He points to his brother Isaac or his brother Jacob and he says, you're dead. I'll kill you. And you know what Jacob does? He picks up his belongings and he runs to a far country, flees for his life. And for 20 years, you listening? He never saw Esau again. He was in hiding for 20 years. Until one day, God said, Jacob, go home. I want you to go see Esau. And Jacob gets Leah and Rachel, his two wives, and Bilhah and Zilpah, and those two concubines, and all of these children that he's had, 11 of them that he's had at that point. He gets them all in tow, and he makes his way down to meet his brother Esau. And when you come to Genesis chapter number 33 and verse number 4, there is this beautiful moment where two brothers who have been estranged for 20 years over a horrible sin now come back together. And when they're face to face for the first time in 20 years, you know what happens? Their hearts melt, their eyes leak, they run together, they're embracing, they're hugging, they're, they're uh, kissing one another on the cheek and greeting one another, and there is forgiveness, and there is reunion, and there is reconciliation. And as chapter number 37 winds to a close, it is a similar situation where now Jacob's sons and his family are broken in the same kind of way. And do you know it'll be another 20 years for them but after 20 years, the same kind of reunion and reconciliation and forgiveness is going to happen. What's the hope for our families? It's this. It is that God loves us so much that he sent his son Jesus to die for us and that every broken family thing, every sin that occurs in a family can be under the blood of Jesus Christ. It can be forgiven and there can be reconciliation. Amen. And there can be forgiveness. And there can be a reunion even after years of being estranged. I want you to know that God loves your family and he's given you a model, a way, a plan, a structure for how to build your family. And if you'll trust him and build your family that way, then you will find God's blessing over your family. You'll never be perfect, but you will find God's blessing and grace in your family.